Calvin uh, and Landon, and really Christy and I are, are fans of this music group called Slugs and Bugs. It's a Christian uh, pianist and musician, and he puts scripture to music, and he does it in a way that even we adults just, uh, he does it in a way that even though we adults, we, we usually don't just, we don't just withstand it because, you know, it's too childish, but we actually enjoy it. And music, if you didn't know, was a good way to store away words in your heart because it's memorable. I didn't have slugs and bugs as a kid. I had the newsboys. And they're still around, so it shows you how old they are. But the newsboys was and is a Christian band with an obviously Christian-inspired lyrics. And one of their songs I've made mention of here before is the song, Real Good Thing. When you get what you don't deserve, it's a real good thing. And when you don't get what you deserve, it's a real good thing. And these are definitions of, of grace when you get what you don't deserve. Blessings, success, gifts, salvation. And then the other is mercy when you don't get what you deserve. Punishment, final death, the wrath of God. It's mercy when you don't get it. But these concepts of mercy and grace are concepts that, that are so prevalent in the Bible that, at least for me, it almost becomes uh, like breathing. And it's easy to not think about it. It's easy to not grapple with grace and mercy as you read the Scriptures. It's easy to assume that we, we know it and then we put it aside from our dealings with the everything else in the Bible. But if we exclude the grace and mercy of God from what we read, I wonder if we will have misinterpretations of what we're reading and we'll have questions that only God's grace and mercy can answer. So we're going to be looking at chapters 29 and 30 today, but for our purposes, I'd like to start with one verse back in chapter 27, verse 1. So if you can stand and labor for that one verse... (laughs) I invite you to do so. 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. We read, David said to himself, One of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel. And all escape from him. Let's pray. Father, um, oh, to be the original audience of the recipients of this book. But perhaps in some ways we are. You, your Holy Spirit has inspired the writing of these words and your providence and your spirit has retained it for generations. So here we are thousands of years removed from not only the writing, but also the events. So Holy Spirit, knowing that you were present, not only for the writing, but also present for the events, present for the life of David and the characters we meet through these words, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would instruct us, teach us, help us to learn and receive and act accordingly 
to the things you would have us do from the writing of these words. Holy Spirit, it is only through you that we can obey um, the things you put on our heart. So we ask, please have complete freedom to do so. Show us Jesus in these words and help us to tune our hearts and our affections to you. Uh, have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the unsettling things that David has taken to as he has come over to Philistia is having to keep up a ruse. He's been in the habit of lying. When he first came to Philistia, he basically offered his services to this king Achish, and then he took up raiding and destroying villages that were actually old enemies of Israel. In some ways you could say he was sweeping his new home Israel before he moves in. And then he's telling Achish when asked, oh yes, I've been raiding southern Israel. And then he lets his vagueness lead Achish to likely believe that David has been raiding, of course, Israelites, not Israel's enemies that are still in Israel. And the absence of moral commentary on his actions have led to, anyways, to, to some schmucks like me, who want to take into the rest of Scripture, especially into consideration as we note a general condemnation of lying to suggest that David shouldn't be doing such things. I'm not saying he should then be putting his men in harm's way. I'm suggesting that if he hadn't come to Philistia in the first place, he wouldn't be forced to be in this position. But also, I should say, it goes both ways. The lack of moral commentary have of David's actions have led others not like me, to look at what he gains in Philistia. Namely, he's finishing what Joshua started. But he, but Joshua never finished clearing out the promised land. He receives Ziklag, which is the city that he and his men are residing in, and they've been given it to, they've been received it from Achish. And Ziklag was supposed to be in David's tribe anyways. And what he accomplishes in all these things, especially in this passage as we're going to read today. Some will say, well, the Lord must have willed what David has done by going to Philistia. And we'll talk about this as we go along. We see, though, that David has been put into a hard position in chapter 29. If you were here last week, we saw the first glimpses of it because at the beginning of chapter 28, there was the threat of the Philistines on the horizon that led that great King Saul in his desperation to do what all good God-loving Christians do and seek out a medium. If you heard sarcasm, you heard correctly. And, oh, lo and behold, he heard more bad news. Meanwhile, here's the moral dilemma that David is dealing with. It says the Philistines brought all of their military units together at Aphek, while Israel was camped by the spring in Jezreel. Now the beginning of chapter 28 puts Israel in a place called Shunem, which is much closer to the action. The point being, this episode in chapter 29 is actually probably happening a little before Saul consulted the medium. So the author is taking us back in time. Because he can do that because he wrote the book. <laughs> so, 
as the Philistines' leaders were passing in review with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were passing in review behind them with Achish. So did you catch that? David is behind all the Philistines. Yes, likely because Achish would consider them just mercenaries. You're not full-blooded, you're not full-fledged Philistines, so it's out of respect. But then verse 3, the Philistines' commanders, not Achish, the other ones, asked, what are these Hebrews doing here? Achish answered the Philistine commanders, that is David, servant of King Saul of Israel. He has been with me a considerable period of time from the day he defected until today. I found, I have found no fault with him. What are the Hebrews doing? Oh, this is David, you know, the servant of King Saul. He's bringing up the rear because that's a good idea. Which means, as the Philistine commanders point out, verse 4, the Philistine commanders, however, were enraged with Achish and told him, send that man back and let him return to the place you assigned him. He must not go down with us into battle only to become our adversary during the battle. What better way could he ingratiate himself with his master than with the heads of our men? Just like David kept the head of Goliath. Isn't this the David they sing about during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Apparently the song was such a hit in that day that it crossed over to the Philistia border as it was being sung. We should have already picked up on this in chapter 27, but Achish is a gullible fool. Uh, Are you kidding me? We're going to face the Israelites in front of us, and you're putting... These Goliath-slaying warrior champs should be king of Israel behind us. Just to make sure we're pinned in on both sides, send that David back where he came from, Achish. But Achish's, I don't know if that's even linguistically correct, gullibility uh, and his naivete, they, they show up as he reports the sad news to David. So Achish summoned David and told him, As the Lord lives, you are an honorable man. Now, Achish was likely not a follower of Yahweh, but he did use his name here. In this culture, it was likely a courtesy. I kind of think it would be like if a non-Christian commended a Christian saying, you know, you're the real deal. If there was a true God, you serve him, that sort of thing. Achish continues, I think it is good to have you fighting in this unit with me because I have found no fault in you from the day you came to me until today. But the leaders don't think you are reliable. Now go back quietly, and you won't be doing anything the Philistine leaders think is wrong. Now, I think the Philistine leaders could care less that Achish has David and his men under his watch, but they just don't trust David enough to go to war with him. But what have I done? David replied to Achish. Uh, That's a loaded question with moral implications. We know from 1 Samuel 27 that, again, David has been raiding cities and not telling Achish, I should say, who exactly he's raiding. And as I already have said, so again, the moral dilemma comes up, and look at what David says here. He says, from the first day I entered your service until today, what have you found against your servant to keep me from going to fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? The author likes showing us phrases with double meaning. Who's the lord, the king for David here? The words David uses are Adonai, master, the common name of a 
social superior, and sometimes it's used for God since he is our supreme superior. But who's David's king in his mind? Is he referring to Achish? Achish seems to be a little bit like another Saul, so he no doubt believes it. But is David referring to Saul, primarily because of Saul's identification with Israel? You know, David has said as much to Saul's face before, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. What have I done against the Lord's anointed? Or is David referring to the king of kings, Yahweh? (laughs) These last two possibilities seem more like the truth than likely the idea Achish is hearing. Achish instead is apparently just completely conned by David. The chapter finishes, Achish answered David, I'm convinced that you are as reliable as an angel of God. This time the term is not Yahweh, but just the likely pagan offhanded remark. You're like Hercules. Your reliance and loyalty, they surpass the normal man. Achish again doesn't know David's dealings, likely, in Philistia. Achish continues, But the Philistine commanders have said, He must not go into battle with us. So get up early in the morning, you and your master's servants who came with you, when you've all gotten up early, as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. If you know what's going to happen next, David's being forced to return home to Ziklag is providential. However, we must know that David has been spared more than just a battle of flesh and blood, but of likely of spirit, of loyalty. David could have lost the throne in the eyes of his countrymen if he was seen coming out to battle with the Philistines. Questions, no doubt, would have happened as to, well, how long has he been in Philistia? And even if David did do, as the Philistine commanders feared, turn the Philistines over to Saul, there's nothing in 1 Samuel so far to suggest to us that Saul would receive that. He would likely see the opportunity to finally kill him. (laughs) Had we not known what his end will be, thanks to Samuel's prophecy in chapter 28, Saul and his sons died on the battlefield. But even with that, David... Rumors could have circulated too to see, well, David was out there in that battle. Maybe he took him. I wonder if you've ever realized the grace given to you when the way before you has changed. When the plans were were altered. Sometimes we think, drat, I'll never get that opportunity again. Or we think, I was looking forward to that. Or we might think like David may have been thinking, it was going to be hard and messy, but I could have made something of it. But God knows what we've been spared. Your plans to go to town on that day fell through because your car broke down the next day, remember? You didn't get that job in the other town because coincidentally or providentially, you had to take care of your ailing family member in the following year when the health issues started. Why didn't your president go into office? Kevin, shut up. Or your governor. Or your sheriff. Everyone's evil. Everyone's a sinner. But what things were spared too? And did God redeem it at all? David has been spared here a very messy ordeal. But he's coming back to Ziklag to face a whole different ordeal. It's going to be emotional on so many different levels. 
We see in chapter 30, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 6, verse 1 begins, David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day. And that was a 50-mile hike they took. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned Ziklag. They also had kidnapped the women and everyone in it from youngest to oldest. They had killed no one but had carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. But David and his men didn't know that, did they? They had no idea where their families were or if they were even still alive. Verse 4, David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelite and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. This is a day of reckoning. Back in chapter 27, when David first came here to Philistia, the reason David came was this. David said to himself, literally, David said in his heart, This is a conversation between David and himself, excluded, presumably, as God. And the heart is deceitful above all things. David, after a second time of showing mercy when King Saul was in his hands and within his reach, David says to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. Great reasoning. Is it because the track record has shown this? No, God has been faithful to protect him again, to give David opportunities to do with Saul what he wanted, life or death. Nevertheless, David believes there is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I will escape from him. And so he went, and so Saul stopped. And so David and his men and his families were deeded the city, And they've been raiding tribes, Amalekites among them. Perhaps they've told themselves, we've made the right move. But should the anointed king be outside of Israel? Away from the land of his God? You know, David himself detested that idea. Should the anointed king be away from his people? And now it appears a day of reckoning. They're in Philistia. They've been lying to Achish. They've been raiding the Amalekites. And then, to top it off, David and his men had just been heading off to fight Israelites. And do you imagine there had to be a discussion with David and his people? Are we really doing this? When or how is David going to wiggle out of this one? The Amalekites, enemies of God's people since the time of Moses, the people whom Saul was supposed to annihilate completely in chapter 15, the people whom David and his people had been raiding themselves, the Amalekites apparently hear of the Philistines banding together to head off to face Israel. They take advantage. They descend on Ziklag, on the city, and the leader that's been raiding them. Revenge, no doubt. And while we are given knowledge that David 
does not have, namely that their wives and children are alive, David and his men arrive from marching out with the Philistines, marching back, no doubt weary and tired from this. Can you imagine, can you see the smoke ascending into the skies as David's men are within an eye shot of their home? Can you feel the tension rise? The men begin to bolt. They find new energy and adrenaline. Can you sense the sweat from marching turning to sweat of anxiety as they wonder what what happened? Is everyone safe? And then, you mean to tell me that while I have been marching, wondering if I'm really about to attack Israel, that my own home has been ravaged and I've not been home to defend my family? Did this really... David, why have I followed you? And so the people, apparently callous and too incensed to care about David's personal losses, start to wonder at the prospect of mutiny. Again, verse 6. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. I feel like this is a day when bad decisions that David has made is culminating. Is his family gone for good? Are the families of all of his men gone? And he had just been this close to fighting his own country. We don't know if he would do it. It seems unlikely. But sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I come to a place of wondering, how did I even get here? (laughs) Many people blame others. It's easy that way. David could say, it's Saul and Saul alone while I'm out here. He was hunting me down. He was making my life miserable. He's the one who didn't slaughter the Amalekites like God told him to, if he knew that information. It's all Saul's fault. You ever say that or do that? Well, if my parents hadn't, or if that miserable moss of mine hadn't fired me, or if those cruddy people had never introduced me to these drugs, Or if that president, if that governor, if those cheaters, it's always somebody else's problem. Sounds like that woman you gave me, if she hadn't given me that fruit. (laughs) Day of reckoning. David had plans. They were going good for a while. A city in Philistia, no Saul to worry about, raiding the enemies of Israel from their vantage point. But now this city of ruins, the family's lost, this close to attacking Israel. What does David do? And I don't want you to miss this. It's the most important phrase in the entire chapter. Likely the most important phrase in a number of chapters before and after as well. The last part of verse 6. But David found strength and the Lord is God. You know, this is the first mention of David's relationship with God in a long time in the book. You know, we might have a a tendency to view the Lord's protection of David or David's successes as the the Lord's continual blessing or or pleasure with David. But I have a tendency to view it as God's grace and mercy and long-suffering. Again, David's reasoning to come to Philistia and Ziklag in the first place was decided in the conversation between David and himself. No mention of God. But David here, in the middle of this day of reckoning, finds Strength in the Lord is God. I, I needed, I need reminding of this often, but there's never a bad time to turn to the Lord. <laughs> there's never a bad time to turn to the Lord. 
There's never a time when turning to the Lord will bring only more pain, only more punishment, only more misery or condemnation. The enemy would have you believe that. Now, some of you who were here for last Sunday's sermon might say, well, Kevin, you said that if I have junk I need to work on that the Lord remembers. Well, that's not condemnation. That's just true. But if you turn to Him, He's a forgiving God. If my kids do something wrong and it deserves punishment, okay, it happens. But it doesn't mean I don't wish them well. It doesn't mean that I don't wish to forgive them. Or that I don't want the relationship that we have to be soured and never work out. David, after just coming back from being in a very compromised situation, this close to fighting God's own people, finds the end results of his brilliant plan to leave God's people and raid some tribes as this, a burning city and families nowhere to be seen. And some men are ready to off David. Forget Saul now. And David says to God, God, here's what I got. Here's what I accomplished. Can you use it? I know it's a mess. I'm a mess. Can you forgive me? You know what God says? Well, you know, you've been in quite a few shady dealings lately. You've been in some pickles. You should have never left Israel. What kind of king are you? No, I'm not dealing with you any longer. No. God always receives those who turn to Him. This was Saul's problem. Saul was confronted with his sins and a hard truth. You're no longer king. A better neighbor will be. And David didn't turn to the Lord. He didn't find any strength in the Lord in his trial. He ran from the Lord and he opposed the Lord. But David, as vulnerable as he is, turns to the Lord and finds strength. It's never a bad time to turn to the Lord, people. But Kevin, the mess is discombobulated and tangled, and I'm 40 steps down the timeline of where I shouldn't be. Friends, it might as be, it might be as bad as a city burning to the ground and your family's missing. Turn to the Lord, He'll take you. David's men are ready for mutiny. You know, here's, here's where this message got me. Here's my story. Growing up, I've always been a bit of a people pleaser. And the only thing I can contribute to as I've gotten older is that I've gotten lazier. Perhaps more introverted as well, but whenever I'm able, I try to be a people pleaser for better or worse. And naively, somewhere along the way, I guess I thought I'd never be one of those people where someone would say, that Kevin, he's let me down. You know, I've always hoped, in fact, I would say as far as I'm able within reason, I tried to control that sort of reputation of mine so people would say, well, I can't say much bad about Kevin. And I've run into, in recent years, a few folks where I think, and from words that they say, I don't know how else to undertake it than this. I've let them down. And maybe for valid reasons. I haven't come to grips with that part yet. <laughs> but probably not innocent on my side, I know that. And, and I've let them down, and it's bothered me. It's really bothered me. And as unrealistic and, and, and improbable as it is, I've had dreams of being that guy where no one can say, Kevin's lousy, he's let me down. I've wanted to be a guy of integrity, reliability, and for lack of better terms, blameless. Or realistically speaking, at least one tiny notch under blameless, whatever that is. But I feel like I've let people down, and I was driving back from Spokane last Wednesday night. Calvin was asleep, 
And I just realized how much I've been bothered by it. People coming into my brain and I'm getting a headache, feeling like two pennies worth just wondering, what could have I done differently? What could I say? Is there anything to say now to change their opinions of me or to make this situation any better? And I just kept hearing God say, you don't live to please people. You live to please me. You and I are sinners. Good luck. <laughs> and it's and it's hard for goody two-shoes people pleasing Kevin to hear that. I'm a sinner and I'm not going to please everybody. And some of the time it'll be reasons for my own failings and other times it might be reasons for their own sinful failings. Either way, my job is just to please God. Many times, for the others who might say, Kevin, let me down, they don't need any explanation on my part. It might just be on them. And I feel like David's messed up here, and he's been, been, at least I've been making that case for the entire sermon so far, but while David's own men turn against him, David turns to the Lord, and he finds strength. And David said to Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it to him, and David asked the Lord, Should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? David may not even have a clue uh, as to who the raiders were, where they were from. Maybe he does have suspicion. But unlike Saul, who sought the Lord to no avail in chapter 28, the Lord is apparently on the other end of the phone for David and says, Pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. Do you need that today? I don't know what your mess is. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what the sins are. I don't know what the situation is. I do know this. Turn to the Lord. It's going to be okay. Kevin, you don't know that. Well, God's got a faithful track record. It's going to be okay. Well, Kevin, what does okay look like? It's an okay that's worth hoping in. David has just been told here that they're alive. Can you imagine the injection of adrenaline and hope that gives? That, plus, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people, says God. So David and the 600 men with him went. They came to the Wadi Bezor, that's about 13 miles south of Ziklag, where they, where some stayed behind. David and 400 of the men continued the pursuit, while the 200 stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the Wadi Bezor. I mean, they've been to the eastern front of the war with the Philistines, and they've been back 50 miles march both ways. They've lost their families. They're marching again on top of that. It has to be sheer hope on the part of David, and either stupidity or anxious trust on part of the men who are still going with David, that they will be successful. All that to say, no one can blame the 200 men here. Although some of David's men will blame them by the time the chapter is done. Verse 11, David's men found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. Then they gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins. And after he ate, he revived, for he hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days and three nights. You know, if there was ever the thought that the Amalekites were nicer than David and his men. Because David and his men, they wholesale slaughtered their camps. Chapter 27 lets us know that David spared no one when he raided the Amalekite camps. And if you ever thought the Amalekites were being slightly merciful in their retaliation, this slave should let you in on how they deal with their captives. 
He's a slave of theirs and he's been discarded, left to die. The Amalekites kept David and his men's families as captives. And, and you know, to I think it's pretty honest to say that these are 18th, 19th century slave traders before their time. Dying is likely to be more preferred than being taken captive and forced into doing things you would likely suffer shame and disgust from doing. There are plans for the women taken. There are forced labor plans likely for the children taken captive. Verse 13, Then David said to this Egyptian slave, Who do you belong to? Where are you from? I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite man, he said. My master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. We raided the south country of the Cherethites. Some believe that that's just another term for Philistines, maybe a more local term. The territory of Judah and the south country of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. You think David had to have to have a moment to recover here? Maybe he's a skilled warrior and he's able to maintain his emotions. David then said to him, Will you lead me to these raiders? Now the Egyptian slave is not stupid. He says, Swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master, and I will lead you to them. So he led him, and there were the Amalekites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, and celebrating because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. So they had, you know, all the plunder they took from other places, not just Ziklag. David slaughtered them from twilight. Now the Hebrew makes room for this one word to be dawn or dusk, twilight, until the evening of the next day. None of them escaped except 400 young men who got on camels and fled. Now every time I've read that, like that's like a big exception. <laughs> this hamburger costs 50 cents except for the nine bucks you'll be paying besides. <laughs> However, we should recall that the people running away are the same amount of people that's with David, period. Which tells us David and his 400 men put up quite the fright, fight and fright. If that's the exact amount of people who are running away, and they're, they're the size of David's army right there, period. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and daughters and all the plunder the Amalekites had taken. David got everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, which were driven ahead the, of the other livestock, and the people shouted, this is David's plunder. There was an interesting subtle change in the passage's plot. I don't know if you caught it. It came in in about verse 17. Who was marching out to retrieve what they lost? David and his men. But especially as we come into the slaughter of the Amalekites, the author seems to shift to a sole focus on David here. Yes, we're to take that it is indeed David and his men fighting, but... David is singled out even by his own men at the end when they declare that this is David's plunder. Especially as we wrap this up, we, we begin to see that this retrieval, wherein the Lord handed to David uh, everything, and David's even going to declare that it was the Lord who did this, it's actually a defining moment for David. If David's slaying Goliath put David in the proverbial newspapers as an up-and-coming politician, this moment for David and his followers is going to put him on the campaign trail for nomination. If you catch my really lousy, not altogether comparable illustration to American politics today. Because not only does David and his 400 men retrieve the plunder, but we read, when David 
came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with him and had been left at the Wadi Bezor. They came out to meet him and to meet the troops with him. When David approached the men, he greeted them, but all the corrupt and worthless men among those who had gone with David argued, because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the plunder we recovered to them, except for each man's wife and children. They may take them and go. Now, again, I told you, I gave you a spoiler alert that, you know, they would be blamed. Yeah. But are they to be the proud recipients of blood, sweat, and tears and exertion of David and his men when they didn't do all the heavy lifting? But verse 23, David reasons, my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed over us to the raiders who came against us. You hear that? It was the Lord who did this. Verse 24, who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into the battle will be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally. Reminds me of a story that Jesus told about people coming to work at different times of the day, but they all got paid the same. Verse 25, and it has been so from that day forward. David established this policy as a law and an ordinance for Israel, and it still continues to today, at least the day of when the author was writing this. When David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. Now, I'm so glad I took Bible college courses on how to pronounce all these names. He sent gifts to those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, to Jatir, to those in Eror, in Shipmoth, and in Estamoa, to those in Rakal, in the towns of the Jeromulites, and in the towns of the Kenites, to those in Hormah, Borshan, and in Athach, to those in Hebron, and to all the, those in all the places where David and his men had roamed. Or I really like what some of the older translations where David and his men have haunted. Hebron, is at the end of this list because it is in Hebron where David will be crowned king. Second Samuel 2.4, and rule from. Jerusalem is really not on a map in a cultural and an important sense yet for Israel. Complete recovery. Complete restoration. David is better off even than when he had ever thought he would ever likely to return to only a day or two prior when his men had returned to find their homes burnt to the ground. Their families lost and the questions of their own moral failings if they existed in those moments. I want to end with a few words from a book of Paul's that I was reading last week. Ephesians chapter 1 for me would likely require a diagram <laughs> and Ephesians 1, 3-14 for dummies book to even begin to grasp. And it seems to be for me the description of what Paul means later in the book when he says in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And because of how wordy Ephesians 1.3-14 is, I'm going to read it out of the NLT. And if you're afraid, your ears will burn. Not only feel free to, but I urge you to read it in a more literal translation every day this week. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Kevin, why Ephesians 1, 3 through 14? Because what God did for David, God does for us. When David had made a questionable decision at best, moved to Philistia outside of the kingdom of God, and when David had set out to battle the very people of God, and when David and his people had suffered many losses, 
God gave him victory, restored their fortunes, and then some. A double portion, to use words that Dean had read earlier. We are without question sinful. We have been without question outside the kingdom of God and without question at war with the kingdom of God. But all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before He made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in His eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do, and it gave Him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace He has poured out on us who belong to His dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. He has showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us His mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to to fulfill His own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom He promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give the inheritance He promised and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify Him. Let's pray. Father, You you not only recovered the losses of David, You recovered and then restored and then blessed him and his people abundantly and beyond what they had lost to begin with. And there are so many applications from Scripture. Even discipleship is leaving but gaining a hundredfold. Father, we don't deserve the things you give us through the salvation of Christ. But you bless us immeasurably, more than we can comprehend. Father, give us that hope that David had, that some of us may find ourselves in situations that seem beyond repairable, that seem we're so far down the timeline of maybe the bad decisions we started making. Remind us of the truth that there's never a bad time to turn to the Lord. Help us to turn to the Lord and to find uh, a hope and a sure foundation where we can rest our hope. Um, Help us to know that it's a hope worth waiting on and trusting in. You've already given us salvation. What more could a man ask for? But you are still so gracious that you continue to bless us. Thank you, Father. And we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.